Uh, just a few years ago, uh, the film adaptation of a play called Doubt came out, uh, and it's tremendous. It, it's uh, Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Amy Adams, Violet Davis, just brilliant, brilliant performances uh, throughout the entire movie. And, and the, the movie and obviously then the play uh, focus around uh, this, this Catholic church and school and a priest and, and one nun who's sort of new on the scene. She's young, she's green, she's just trying to figure out what it is to be a part of the church, what it is to be a nun, uh, and that's Amy Adams. And then uh, Meryl Streep, uh, right from the first scene, uh, you see that she's this old, very law-abiding nun. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a new priest in, and he's preaching. Uh, and one of the students, uh, well, all of the students fear Meryl Streep, it's clear, but one of the students is nodded off, and she's walking up the side of the church, up the pews, and as she does, fear kind of horror fills the, the, the children, and they, they sit up very straight. If they're talking, they stop. If they're talking and uh, they don't notice, then another child fulfills the code and quickly taps them and is like, you know, she's, she's coming, watch yourself. And then one kid is just asleep, head on the pew in front of them. I, I've seen it from this perspective, but it's nice to see it <laughs> from the other perspective. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, Meryl Streep just, um, she, she just kind of like gets down next to him, right? And he's asleep, so he doesn't know it. And her face is like right at his ear. She's like, attention! You know, and he's just, boom! And then, and, and she has no regard for the fact that, that a sermon's being preached. So um, if you notice your neighbor nodding off, that's not the approach, that's not the approach. I, I, I prefer maybe a more gentle, silent approach. And, and if they're not snoring, leave them alone. Who knows what last night was like. Um, but, but you can just see right from the beginning that she's just this law-driven um, woman. And uh, it's kind of in the background because the scene is so dominated by Meryl Streep and her presence. But uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's priest character is preaching on doubt, and it's a year after Kennedy had been assassinated. And so there was just national doubt, national anxiety. What is going on? They could, I mean, Kennedy was loved, and he was gone, and a president was assassinated, and, and the country just, there was a, a unified sense of what is happening. And that was his sermon. And then, and then throughout the course of the movie, his character comes into question. Um, by Meryl Streep, and Meryl Streep acts with certainty throughout the, the whole movie. She's just unflinching, unwavering, acts with certainty, and I won't give the details of the movie away, but I will tell you just the last um, lines of, of the movie, because um, Meryl Streep and or, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams, their characters are very unsure, or, or if not unsure, they're, they're measured. They, they want to make sure that they're in the right before they say anything. And they're not afraid to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure. Uh, but for Meryl Streep's character, that's almost sinful. To say, I, I, I'm, I, I just, I have, I'm uncertain of this. And in the, the last uh, line of the movie, after 
everything is played out after Meryl Streep's character has done what she wanted to do and set, set out to do um, and, and the fallout of that happens. Uh, she's sitting outside with Amy Adams and you, you see on her face just this sudden realization, you know, what if? And, and, and she turns to Amy Adams and she says, you know, this character who's been so certain the whole time, she says, I have doubts. I have such doubts. And, and, and it's so overwhelming because of who she's been. Um, and, and you begin to realize that even the strongest of characters and the most resolute of people still have underlying, under the surface, insecurities and doubts that are inescapable. And different people choose to respond to those insecurities in in different ways, but this is a universal thing. And and I I can tell (laughs) just by the the, the air in the room that this is true of all of us. It's true of me. I, I remember, and, and the youth have heard this, um, but I remember as a, as a kid uh, thinking through God and he's eternal, but what does that mean? And, and he's loving, but, you know, my my dad's not here and i don't quite get what's going on and just being up it what seemed like forever i'm sure it was like 20 minutes who knows but as as a kid it just felt like being up forever um thinking about these things and then it got to the point where even i would um have to like have something on all the time um, at night, in the day, it's, it's, if it's not music, then it's the television, or it's, um, when I was younger, at night, it was Adventures in Odyssey, that radio series, just, like, I'll repeat the same thing, it didn't matter what, I wasn't listening to it, it was just drowning out this overwhelming insecurity that, that was, um, that was just such a part of, of who I was. Um, this is a reality of humanity. Uncertainty and doubt. And some of you, some of you are sitting in this room this morning and you're hearing this and, and, and you, it resonates with you utterly. Um, you're just filled with doubt. You're in church but you don't really know what to make of it, or you're in church and you're hearing these things, but it doesn't seem to add up, um, or you're in a place in your life where the finances aren't where they need to be, and that's putting it very, very nicely. Um, you're in a state of desperation. Your marriage is not where it should be. In, in fact, it's barely hanging on. You're looking at your circumstances, and you are wondering um, all of this talk about hope and truth and how can I know it? And then on top of that, we live in a culture that to an extent glorifies 
just confidence. Just bordering on arrogant confidence. You know, if you make a statement, it, if there's any insecurity in it, it's thrown out. You, you, you must be resolute about every statement that you make. You must be sure. And if you're not sure in our culture, then it says, well, well look at them. They're, they're saying that, but they're backing off. They don't know what they're talking about. And so the loudest voices that seem the most confident dominate the marketplace of ideas, dominates the airways, waves, dominates and pervades our culture. And so then you feel even more unsure because you're saying, well, I believe this and I'm, I'm, I'm working through this, but I don't, I'm not that guy. Like I can't say it with such certainty as that guy. Maybe something is wrong with me. Maybe... Maybe I'm not who I think I am or want to be. And then we look to scripture. And we read stories like last week's story about Abraham. And if you recall, uh, Abraham uh, rescues Lot from the hands of, of Ketileomer and and. And he goes in and, and, and there's this war between all of these little tribes, these, these, these little nations, if you will. And they go to war and Abraham's side, Abram's side is victorious. And then that, that insert where Melchizedek comes in and blesses Abraham. Uh, and I'm just going to keep doing that. It's still Abram at the time. I'm going to speak and say Abraham. I just cannot help it. Um, but... But Melchizedek blesses him, and then the king of Sodom comes to him, right? And so here's the thing, is how much security is enough security? Right, the answer is, uh, I, I can't think of enough security. You know, if, you, if you're telling me, yeah, my family's pretty secure, but we can pad the savings a little bit. Um, yeah, my home is pretty secure, but I can add extra precautions to make sure that the safety of my family is protected. We'd never say, oh, well... It's secure enough. But Abraham here, he gets this opportunity to get riches and to, to, to find even a little bit more security. And he turns it down, just straight up. He says, look, I don't want anyone to think that I got anything but anyone from God or anything from anyone but God. Right? And so he throws it down. Like, <laughs> the proverbial stack of cash is pushed to him. He pushes it back and says, God's got me. And that's how we read it, right? Like, his arms are out. He's not worried about it at all. He walks away. Psalm's like, whoa, that dude believes in God. And, and Abraham just walks away. But, but that's where we find ourselves in chapter 15. This has just happened. And I want you to see something. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. This is where we're going to sit for the whole time. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. The, the text is going to be up on the screen. Turn in your Bibles. We're not going to stand up. We're just going to break this down a little bit. But after these things uh, had happened, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, so first of all, if we keep the understanding of 
Abram's confidence in Genesis 14, this statement makes very little sense. God comes to him and says, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield, your protector. And if I'm Abram, I say, well, didn't I just show that I'm not afraid? Didn't I just turn down the protection of someone else? Trusting in you? But that's not Abram's heart, and he's honest with God. And and he says, O Lord, verse 2, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Right Right off the bat, we see that Abram is filled with insecurity and doubt over the promises of God. Because if you recall, um, uh, you may have seen it flashed up there. The, we're calling this week and next week the God Who Covenants. And it's part one and part two. Uh, but really, uh, if you re- remember all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, uh, around chapter three, two or three, uh, we, we, we had a sermon uh, Brad preached called The God Who Writes His Own Agreements. Uh, this could be the God who writes his own agreements, part two, or even part three. Uh, because in Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the land that he was in and says to him, I'm going to make you the father of uh, many nations. And through your offspring, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Well, to be the father of many nations, you need to have at least one child. And Abram currently has approximately none children. And so, Abram, after being delivered from this battle, after having Melchizedek, a a priest of God Most High, bless him in the name of God. And he recognized it to the point that he tithed to the priest. Even after that, he's unsure of if God is going to keep his promise. This is us. This is us. I I can't tell you how many times for Melissa and I, we have come down to the end of the month and thought, "Uh uh-oh. Like we look at the bank account, we look at the remaining things that we need to pay for, and we say, well, this might be it, (laughs) you know? And then God, whether through the church or whether through some just unexpected route, he provides every time, every time. And he could do it for eight months in a row. And that ninth month, come the 25th, we're like, uh-oh. God, are you going to do this? Like, there's, there's still that God has done great things in your life. Still, there, there's that uncertainty. God, you called me out of my home. You sent me on this trip. I disobeyed you in Egypt. By my lack of faith, I said that my wife was my sister. I see now that was a problem. But then I did it again. And yet, after each time, you continue to bless me, make me richer than I was before. 
You've made it clear that you have a place for me. I go into wars outgunned and you bring me out and you bless me. But I still don't have a son. Who are you? Are, are you who you say? Can I trust you? Look, we're talking about covenant today. And so this seems odd. And I will say this, that there's so much that could be said about covenant. Um, from an academic standpoint, uh, that's very important. Uh, the first sermon that I preached in Genesis, I don't remember which one it was, um, I talked about how there are certain themes, certain strings that just tie scripture together. They run through all scripture and they find fulfillment in Jesus. Well, there are certain big ones, right? Kingdom is a big one. Temple is a big one. Covenant is a massive theme. And if you don't understand covenant biblically, then in some ways you're not understanding your place in the church and in God's picture. And so that needs to be talked about, and fortunately that will be addressed at home group, and I realize that uh, some of you will not be having home group tonight for one reason or another. Uh, but, but it's also going to be the question set for next week, so you will have a chance to go over it. Um, however, covenant is huge, but in this case there's a very practical, existential, just personal thing that we need to see about covenant. Because God, co- God covenants with his people. God establishes his covenant for various reasons. And the first reason that we're going to see right here is that God covenants with his people uh, to assure them in the midst of their doubts. God's covenant is meant to be for you an assurance in the midst of doubt. And so Abraham, Abram, Abram says to God, look, at this point, you've said this, you've made this statement. In some ways, you could call it a promise. But I have no children. And behold, this is verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. We're going to pause there for a second. Because God doesn't doesn't go small with Abraham, right? He doesn't say, Look, I'm going to get you a child. Relax. He says, I've, made, I've, I've given you my word and I'm going to give it to you. More than that, more than that, old man. Let's go outside. Now look up at the stars. Um, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have done that? Like how many of you have gone out uh, in, the, in the country or on a mountain, somewhere where there's just not light pollution and ever just stared up at the stars? 
One of the times I was in Haiti, I think, was the most amazing because there's just there wasn't electricity where we were. We were on the top of this building, and it was night, and so it was dark, and you could look up, and and you almost forgot that people were dying all around you because of the majesty of the heavens. David talks about it, right? Oh, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at the, the heavens, the moon, and the stars, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by how big you are and how small I am. And so it is no coincidence that God takes Abram outside and says, look at the stars. Kind of like Mufasa, right? Look at the stars. Um, maybe not. Uh, but God decides that he's going to go outside in the midst of his creation and he is going to covenant with Abram there because one of the reasons that God covenants with his people is to remind us of our frailty and of his supremacy. God wants you to remember how frail you are and that he is supremely sovereign over all things. God makes it so that there's no way that that Abram comes out of battle puffing his chest up saying, I got this. God, you said I'm going to be the father of many nations? Well, here I go. No, it's in his weakness that God covenants with him. It's in his doubt that God covenants with him. And let's look at what continues to happen. This next line is fantastic. It's one of the major themes of scripture. Um, I'll make a small aside in a second, but, and he, Abram, believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. This is it. All of a sudden, we see the means by which righteousness is counted. Abram, it took a lot of guts to leave home. It took a lot of guts to run in and save Lot and get in this battle. But it's not the things that Abram did per se that were counted to him as righteousness. They were signs of something underlying of faith. And so right here, Abram's faith is counted to him as righteousness. He is counted right with God because of his faith. This is Abram. Abram is before Moses, which means Abram is before the law, which means that God has always been saving people and counting them righteous by faith and not works. And so, so just as a little aside, we've been talking a lot lately about what could be referred to as Reformed theology. Uh, and, and when I think of Reformed theology, I think of it over against uh, what's known as dispensationalism. And without getting too much into the technical terms and, and, and what they are, in, in short, dispensationalism says that God has interacted with his people differently throughout time. And so with Adam, if he would have just obeyed, then that was salvation for him. With the people of Israel, they were saved by keeping the law. And after Christ, we are saved by faith. No one, not one of the New Testament authors affirm this. If you look at Hebrews, right away you see it was faith. It was faith. 
God saw Abram's faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans reminds us of that as well. God has always interacted with his people in the same way. Righteousness is granted by faith. And even that faith is a gift of God. And that's why we have covenant, remember? To remind us of our frailty and of God's supremacy. Another way of saying it is that salvation belongs to the Lord. God loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. We're going to talk about that next week. So he covenants with you. And in this covenant, we see that the only way to God is through faith. But we're going to see more than that as we keep reading in verse 7. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And in this, I want to again comfort you, people of God, when you feel insecurities and when you feel doubt. Because within two verses, Abram has believed in faith God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he questions whether or not God will do what he says he's going to do. How does that work? How does that work? Unless within all of us, there is a smallness that is overwhelmed by the majesty and the promises of God. And apart from his grace, we will always be filled with insecurities. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God says, look, I did what I did for you. And Abram says, yes, but how will I know? How will I know? God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, so yeah, gross. I get that. But not unusual. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's important to hear. Because we just had a great example of an ancient Near Eastern war. All right? They're between nations, but nations are like what we would call towns. And each town, like Brad said, had a mayor. A lot of times that mayor was just sort of like the lord, the, the don of that family. Right? There was a family that owned the servants and owned this, that, and the other. And so he was their king. Right? Uh, Lord Grantham, right? He's the, he's the king of Downton. And so, uh, and so they, they, they go to battle, and sometimes what would happen is this, that as they would meet in battle, one king would realize, oh, they have 300 men to my 30. I think Jesus said something like this. And when they realized they were outnumbered, they would go and they would ask for peace. Okay, I'm going to get killed Let's stop this fighting. Who wants to fight? You know, you got 300. That's, that's cool. I, I saw your movie. Um, 
it's, it's fine. Just let's not fight. Let's be friends. And they'd go out and they would send representatives. And then there would be terms of uh, covenant that was made. And essentially the terms would be something along the lines of, hey, I'm the greater king here. I was going to destroy you and I showed you grace. So I will be your king. I will take some form of tax from you. I will give you my protection. And all that you need to do is pay that tax and obey the rule of law that I give you. All right? And if those terms were found agreeable, which typically when it's either agree or die, they're found agreeable, then this ritual would begin and they would take animals and they would cut them in half and lay each side over against it, each other. And this covenant process would begin. So I want you to hear, I want you to see what's happening. Abram says, look, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How, how, how do I know that you're in? How do I know that this is real? And God begins to covenant with him. God says, I'll show you. I will enter into this contractual agreement with you. We're going to look at what that looks like. Uh, However, I do want to say this. Um, This is a very, I'm astounded at how many people in our culture um, think that because they live together and that they um, say they're faithful to one another, um, they're, they're married. Or, or they say something to the effect of, well, why do we need a piece of paper? Why do we need the ceremony? We love each other. God could have said that to Abram. He could have. So what more do you need from me? I'm here, aren't I? But he sees the insecurities and he realizes that there is a way to say that this is Forever. And it's covenant. And he covenants with them. Look, that's marriage. And I don't know where any of you are in this, but um, God has not called you to say, oh, well, we live together, so what's, really, what's the difference? Nothing changes. Everything changes. Covenant is the dominant theme in Scripture, and everything changes after God makes this promise with Abram, this covenant with Abram, and he walks ceremonially up the Isle of Blood between the animals. Everything changes, and ultimately, it's going to lead to the cross. There's a level of commitment now that is unshakable. And maybe to a lesser extent, you may say to yourself, why do you keep harping on being a member of the church? I'm here, aren't I? I give, I serve, do everything that's asked of me, and I don't complain about it. Look, that's just really not how it worked in the New Testament. And in another sense, we, it cannot be known for sure apart from covenant. Like we can trust to a certain extent. 
you know, I didn't throw this in front of the elders, so um, I'll give myself a little bit of wiggle room. (laughs) But, I mean, this is covenant. We are part of a covenant community. And there is rite and there is ceremony. We're going to see that next week. And it's important to be a part of covenant community. And so you can do all of the things. But if, and, and maybe more to reverse it. Why not? Why not? Why don't you think on that? Uh, no, I won't. I'm going to say one more thing. Because <laughs> we're here. And so we're going to go. Um, if you say it's unbiblical, I would say change it to it's extra biblical. And then remember that so also are the guitars that were used when we sang worship and these nice cushy seats that we're sitting on. Um, So is the doctrine of the Trinity, at least that term, not the doctrine. There are a lot of things that can rightly be inferred from Scripture that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. Membership is one of those things. And we do not want you to become a member because we want to count our numbers as higher. We want you to become a member because we love you and we want to be in covenant relationship with you as members of church, of Grace Community Church, of this local church. So moving back, Abram says, how can I know you are gonna be faithful till the end? God says, all right, get some animals, split it. Let's do this. Let's carry on. Now, in that ancient Near Eastern covenant, after they split the animals, what would happen is that the two kings would then join hands, the greater king and the lesser king, and as they walked through the pieces of animal, they would animals, they would repeat the terms of the covenant to each other. And when they got to the other side, they would swear this covenantal oath. If I break any terms of these covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. That's huge. So let's look at the story. Because Abram drives these birds away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, we're hearing terms in a sense. We're gonna get more terms of this covenant in chapter 17 because what's interesting about Abram, God's covenant with Abram is that it's, it's sort of revealed progressively. And we'll see that next week, that there's bits of it here that we understand and then there's the rest of it that we understand later. And God is very intentional about that because right here, what we have is a promise to Abram that God is going to give him an offspring and that he's going to deliver them in their time of need. Those are the terms for God, but we don't see terms for Abram. 
God says, this is my side of the deal. That's it. And when the sun had gone down, verse 17, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Let me just explain to you a little bit about what's going on there because this is the first time that we're seeing this uh, picture of uh, a smoking pot and, 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 and flaming torch. But um, if you'll flash forward in your biblical remembrance to Exodus, Uh, God delivers the people out of Egypt and they need to be guided to the right place and they are guided by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. God guides them by this. They are moving towards it. We'll hold on to that it. Then you go to the minor prophets. You go to uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and you get these pictures of... uh, the glory of God and it's a consuming fire smoke and fire are often used to describe the presence of the Lord uh, the spirit of the Lord and so this this smoking pot and this this flaming torch that walk or pass through the pieces, this is representative of God. God, the king, then, while, <clears throat> while Abram is in a deep sleep, passes between the pieces of the animal, repeating, presumably to himself, the terms of his covenant. On that day, The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now what you have to understand geographically is that that is the entire known world. All right, we need to talk about this for just a second. We'll get to talk about it a little bit more next week. But right away, God is saying that I'm giving to your people the entire world. And we spend a lot of time talking about a plot of land. And you see why, especially in Exodus. But God's primary, his initial covenant with Abram is that your people will possess the entire world. They will be fruitful and multiply. They will be a great nation. And it harkens back to Genesis 1 when God gives to his people humanity to be kings and queens of the earth. They're to be fruitful and multiply and they're to have dominion over the entire earth. God's covenant throughout scripture, it manifests itself at different times and it looks a little bit different. And you're gonna see this in home group, but it stays primarily the same. God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. God says to Noah, okay, now you're gonna be fruitful and multiply. You're gonna rule over the earth. God says to Abram, 
You're going to be the father of many nations. That takes a little bit of being fruitful and multiplying. If you're nations, if kings are coming from you, you're ruling. God's covenant looks the same. And he's giving him the whole earth. But before we get too far away swept in that, we have to come back to that picture. God alone walks through the animals. God alone repeats the terms of the covenant, which are placed on him alone by himself. Which means that if you take this picture to its end, God says, if this covenant is broken, if either party of this covenant breaks, our covenant, then what was done to these animals? Let it be done to me. Just to juxtapose this a little bit with Melchizedek, I found it fascinating. It's so great that Melchizedek comes and he brings bread and wine. Right? And we're going to take communion and, and Jesus breaks bread and drinks wine with his disciples on that last day. And, and he says, this bread is my body and this wine is my blood. Um, and he breaks the bread and and there's the blood. And, and, and in this covenant picture, what do we have? Now we have body that is broken and blood signifying covenant. Um, God uh, sends Abram down with the, the covenant saying that your people will possess this land, your people being Israel. The, the, the covenant, I just said Abram, I meant Moses. Um, the covenant's not to Moses, it's to, Israelite, to the Israelites, but Moses is the one who, who brings this covenant from God to them. And when he does it, he pours out wine and says, this is the blood of the covenant. And then Jesus does the exact same thing. So this is the blood of the new covenant. God has been working the same way throughout history and it's been this, that the covenant will be broken and so will I. So if you recall, God establishes covenant to assure his people in the midst of doubt. God establishes this covenant to remind us of our frailty and his supremacy. And God establishes his covenant to provide a means of salvation and life for his people. Another way you can say this is grace. It's grace. God says, I will be broken for you. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that God demonstrates his love for us how? That at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says that if you want to know and be reminded of the love of God, the promise-keeping love of God, you need look no further than the cross. If you want to know that God keeps his promises, that he is a covenanting God who you can trust, you need look no further than the cross. God's covenant with Abram right off, right away, it draws us to the cross that Jesus was broken for us as those animals were broken. Jesus' blood was spilled out for us, for you. You can trust him. 
He did not run away from his covenantal responsibility. He ran to it. Christ loves you. And he died for you. So how do you enter into this covenant? Who are the covenant people of God? We're going to hit that up next week in much detail. But I will say this, that this covenant with Abraham predates Israel. Israel is Jacob. Remember he wrestles with God and God changes his name to wrestles with God. Israel means wrestles with God. Um, <laughs> that's Abraham's grandson. So this promise predates the tribes. It predates Jacob, who becomes Israel. And we're left with this question, well, who are Abram's descendants that are blessed? And Scripture tells us, you are Abram's descendants if you are people of faith. You are heirs of the promise of the covenant by faith. Now, if you're living with that insecurity, if you're living in the midst of tumultuous times and doubt, it's faith that draws us to the grace of God. It's really grace that propels our faith back to the grace of God. It's crazy how dependent on God we are. But faith turns our eyes to Jesus on the cross and Jesus says, I've kept my covenant with you. Rest assured. You must see with eyes of faith. So for some of you, you need to remember that. Look to the cross. Look to God's covenant. I would be remiss if I ended a sermon here without mentioning the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to. <laughs> if you remember in the fellowship, uh, there's a, this group of people, including Frodo, who've banded together for this cause, the Fellowship of the Ring. They go, and there's an elf. Some of you are already like, I'm out. <laughs> That's fine, but you're wrong, and I'll pray for you. But Galadriel gives them gifts. Uh, and to Frodo, she gives a very unique gift. Um, it's the star glass. Uh, and, and, and basically the light of this star has been captured in, in this crystal. And she gives it to Frodo and she says to, the, to him, take this. May it be a light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. That's the covenant. That's the covenant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when his friend was getting married, wrote to him and said, look, from here on out, it's not your love that sustains your covenant, it's the covenant, the marriage covenant that sustains your love. What is he saying there? He's saying sometimes the love is not there. Sometimes the like is not. Sometimes tolerate is not there. 
too many knowing laughs. (laughs) But in those times, in the darkness of your relationship, your covenant is a light that holds you, that carries you through. Look, times of doubt and insecurity come. God's covenant with you is a light in those dark places. And it will guide you out. Look to the light. I won't say this frequently, but go to the light. Okay? It's God's covenant. We see it most fully on the cross. Turn to Jesus. And as at this time... Look, if the elders can come up, we're about to go into to communion. But, but this relates to communion perfectly. Obviously, uh, in communion, we see this picture of the body of Christ broken and the blood spilled. And so we look back at this covenantal picture that we've just seen, and it's just brimming with communion. Communion causes us to remember this. Uh, But what we hear so much when we're about to go to communion is this. Look, if your heart's not in the right place, don't go to the table. And it's this uh, misappropriation of Corinthians where, where the church there, the rich people are feasting and getting drunk and they're being gluttonous on the communion wine and bread while the poor people aren't even getting communion. And Paul says, communion... The root word is union. Like, how are you missing this? You are not taking it together. You're taking it wrongly and you're taking curses upon yourself. He's not saying, man, if last night you sinned and you feel enormous guilt, don't go to the table because God might kill you. No, the table is the opposite of that. The table is this place where God communicates his grace to you anew. We take communion to remember Christ on the cross. And so what better time to take communion than in a dark place? What better time to be pointed to the light than when your heart is weary and unsure? And so yes, pray. Ask God to revive you. Ask God to remind you of his grace, to free you from guilt. But take this table, take this, this cup and, this, and this, this bread and let it now be a light for you if you are in a dark place. Because God has promised and he will not go back on that. Uh, and so, on that night that he was betrayed, Jesus ate with the disciples and, and he broke the bread and he, he served out the wine. And 